0: listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees. They're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I like to start off with usually one or two cups. I make it by hand at home with a pour-over, but it doesn't matter how you make it. You could be using a Mr. Coffee machine. It doesn't matter, but what does matter is the beans, you have to start with really high quality beans and you'll always make sure you have a great cup. So just say no to those burnt, over roasted corporate coffee beans that you find at a grocery store and upgrade your coffee game. I'm going to make it real easy for you. Here's what you do. Just go to covacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A, coffee.com and use our code JDP10, that's jdp 10 and you get $5 off your first purchase. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. You'll be happy you did. I want to welcome our newest sponsor, Baron Fig. Whether you need pens, notebooks, or bags, they have you covered. Baron Fig makes tools for thinking, and they'll help you do your best thinking at home, work, and in between. And if you're a podcast fan, the small little notebooks they have are great for taking notes to refer back to later. I've been using their products now for gosh, over five years, and I love the craftsmanship and attention to detail. So if you like the podcast, show your support to Baron Fig, go to baronfig.com and use our code JDP10, that's JDP10, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase. So go check it out right now while you're thinking about it. Today in the show, we have Michael Every. Michael is Head of Financial Markets Research for the Asia-Pacific region at Rabobank. He has nearly two decades of experience working as an economist and strategist. Previously, he was a Senior Economist and Fixed Income Strategist at RBS, and he was an economist for Dun & Bradstreet. He holds a Master's Degree in Economics with Distinction from University College London, speaks Thai, and he's a contributor to Zero Hedge. Enjoy my conversation with Michael Every. Michael, welcome to the podcast uh, great to be here well it's great having you so the first question I like to ask guests is going back to two thousand eight tell us a little bit about what you were up to professionally and what was going through your mind in the global financial crisis
1: well, to be honest, uh, I was swimming in the pool of my condo in Bangkok uh, doing yoga a couple of sessions a day and pretty much laughing at everyone panicking during the GFC saying, I told you so suckers Uh, (laughs) because I'd, uh, I'd quit my job in early 2007 uh, because I could see that some looming crisis was, uh, was imminent. Uh, I was a wee bit early on the call, but I thought let's go somewhere with a nice low cost of living that isn't going to be too swept up in this particular financial crisis if it does hit. Uh, so that's what I was
0: doing. Interesting. So you were early on, on that and saw some of the debt being built up in the, uh, in the mortgage space and, and maybe some other areas in the economy? Uh, I did, yes. Uh, you know, I, can, I can
1: dig out very dusty old uh, PDFs from the mid-2000s with me muttering about things like the Great Depression, coming back again, um, <laughs> you know, doom, gloom, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, I've been on a similar theme for quite some time for anyone who reads my work.
0: Yeah, so a lot of people might be familiar with your work from seeing it uh, posted on Zero Hedge. Of course, you distribute you know to clients and through through the, the blog there um, with the bank. But you know, going to present day here, you've written about a lot of the debt buildup in certain areas of the economy. Obviously, right now it's corporate debt. And then, you know, sovereign debt, we just saw yields hit the all-time low on the 10-year here in the U.S. and the 30-year, which we'll get into. But talk a little bit about where you see the actual, you know, buildup of of leverage in the system right now compared to the global financial crisis. Well, obviously,
1: there are similarities and differences. One of the key differences now is that sovereign debt is far higher than it was before. Uh, That's Mm -hmm. true, obviously, in the U.S., And globally Um, household debt if anything is slightly lower Um, if you look at you know some measures uh, which is encouraging although it's hardly what you would call low Uh, and certainly in other parts of the global economy particularly China it's going through the roof Um, and corporate debt well I'm worried about the quality of corporate debt rather than the outright level of it but again that depends on the country that you're looking at. And I take a global view rather than a a purely U.S.-centric one. Um, But the long and the short of it is, you know, if we're talking debt, we still have far too much of it uh, in far too many places uh, and in far too many sectors. Uh, And it's a one-way path that we're on. Uh, And if one understands that dynamic, it's really impossible to be optimistic in the long term.
0: Right, and I'm reading your your recent note here from titled "Epoch Marking the Moment in Treasury Yields is Imminent," posted here on Zero Hedge. Um, and just at the outset here, you you talk about the 10-year um, going to that. I think the the lowest it traded at was a one spot four. Um, they're one spot four. And so, you know, going to that, possibly that sub 1% level. And obviously we, we've had even some things change since you wrote this note. Talk a little bit about, you know, wh- what you see unfolding just even in the past few days uh, with yields touching those all-time lows on the 10 year and the 30 year.
1: Well, I think you have to look at it like this. This virus, which I'm, I'm sure we'll discuss in more detail in a moment, is obviously a shock to the system. But if the system mm-hmm. was healthy, we wouldn't be in half the trouble that we're in now. Uh, and effectively, it's acting as an accelerant, albeit an unprecedented accelerant, an accelerant to a number of underlying trends, which are extremely negative on a broad range of you know, socioeconomic and financial fronts, and which have been dragging that 10-year yield down in the US anyway. It's not like we were trending higher, you know, heading up towards two, then three, then four, as some of the other talking heads on Wall Street have been saying for years now and and being (laughs) wrong continuously, by the way. And then suddenly the virus hits and we're heading back down towards one. It's not at all that. It's more a sudden fast forward taking us towards an endpoint that seemed to be inevitable to me for a long time anyway. Um, So that's how I like to frame how the virus is having that impact. Um, Obviously, If we are going to get the Fed acting aggressively this year, and that was already our expectation, by the way, our House call was already that by December we'd be back at the zero lower bound for the Fed. Uh, We now think that's going to happen by September. Uh, So obviously, yes, those yields are going going to continue to come bring in. But as I stress, we were already expecting that to be happening
0: just 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 slightly more slowly. Yeah, and I've been reading your notes for a while and um, they all have the similar theme. and as you mentioned, you've been you've been talking about this for a while. And finally, you know, some of this stuff is is finally coming to fruition. So you mentioned the Fed. Here you break down uh, toward the end of your article here where they could actually go and, and what might happen. You mentioned the G7 meeting. So, you know, a lot of people thought maybe the Fed would put in the emergency cut yesterday, maybe before the Asian markets opened. Um, that didn't happen. We saw the BOJ make a somewhat vague statement, just saying they're going to be able to provide liquidity and, and be accommodative. Um, and so you, you break this down here in your article talking about, okay, the different scenarios that they could, they could go you know whether it's a 25 bip 50 bip cut let's talk through that a little bit cuz that was a really interesting part of the note well obviously if they do nothing markets are going to puke at this stage <laughs>
1: because, <laughs> yeah you know everyone's expecting central banks to save the day again so they can't do nothing they've they you know they they're, they're really stuck imagine they do 25 basis points what does that do i mean it, it's 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 a token gesture And even if they say, well, don't worry, there'll be another one coming in six weeks and another one in six weeks after that, I don't really see that's going to calm people when globally. And again, I'm looking at this globally, you know, the front page of uh, the UK papers today, just to give you a a flavour of what we're seeing over here, are talking about when cities are going to be locked down by the police and army and what plans we have in place and how supermarkets are trying to draw up contingency plans to make sure there'll be food. Now, obviously, the press does tend to get a little bit overexcited, and I'm not saying there isn't some exaggeration there. Yeah. But what does 25 basis points do against that kind of backdrop? And the answer is absolutely nothing. It's an insult. <laughs> so then, okay, let's say you wheel out your 50. Here comes the big gun. And that's what we think they will do, actually. Our house call is they'll do a 50 in March. I mean, for those of you who remember when rates were still being cut rather than being hiked, and, you know, you have to go back a long time in the markets to actually remember Fed, you know, uh, aggressive Fed rate cuts because, you know, that's pre, pre-GFC pre or into the GFC, as it were. Um, yeah. You know, 50 basis points is your bazooka. That's your big gun, really. What does an extra 25 basis points on top of a token 25 basis points achieve if your supermarkets are running out of food and you've got, you know, the army and police on the streets locking people into their houses like we saw in China or, you know, dropping off sacks of potatoes and rice and then, you know people scurry out of their homes with disinfectant and try and grab them and run back in again and boil them up like some kind of plague scenario. Now, again, I'm not saying this is going to happen. But if that's what the market is selling off, fearing, and you know, there's certainly a tail risk of that happening, what's 50 basis points? It's also nothing. So once you actually show that, you really show that the central message here is that central banks can try and step in as the big daddy the way they have done repeatedly during crisis after crisis um, over recent years. And this is a case of transmissibility trumping liquidity. What is extra liquidity going to do if everyone is holed up at home eating rice and potatoes?
0: Yeah, exactly. So, And that goes into the the global supply chain. And when you look at China um, and the impacts of the economy, which, you know, let's just save that for kind of the toward the end here of the conversation, but you brought up a good point with the Fed cutting as far as, you know, what will that actually do? So in your view, obviously they're having this G7 meeting. In your view, do you think the Fed is gonna do an intermeeting cut, um, you know, before the, the March meeting or, you know, where do you stand on that? Well, I think the likelihood is moving rapidly in that direction. Um, mm-hmm.
1: Obviously, that needs to be coordinated with everybody else rather than just in, in word. Um, you can mm-hmm. make an argument that and so far in the US, the economy hasn't been impacted enough that just knowing that there's, a, you know, a 50 basis points coming at the end of the month, you can afford to proceed on that basis. And, you know, the yield curve will shift anyway to adjust it. So uh, from the financial side, effectively, it's already priced in, uh, you know, to, to a large extent. <laughs> I don't really think it makes a great deal of difference, except psychologically that if they bring it forward, it shows that they really do care.
0: Yeah, I think there's some concerns about they only have so many bullets in the chamber and and obviously we don't know how bad this is going to get, so they don't want to kind of use one prematurely. Um, But, you know, I'm assuming obviously the market rallied today in anticipation, as you mentioned, that the Fed and and other central banks are probably going to do some coordinated activity. Is that right? Uh, Correct. In fact, just on this morning's note, which I just sent
1: out, I've called it Super Trooper Tuesday, uh, quoting the lyrics from the ABBA song. If anyone who's listening is old enough to remember ABBA um, and how we're (laughs) going to be blinded by the Super Trooper uh, beams, which make us feel like we're number one. Um, You know, but unfortunately, I don't think central banks and the G7 are going to be able to stop us feeling blue on this particular front here um there's not a lot that is actually going to be achieved and it's ironic actually as well because if you look at the number of global crises we face um you know from the debt crisis global imbalances uh, you can extend that right the way through to the climate crisis if you know if you're in that particular camp and i uh, i understand some people listening may not be but others obviously very passionately are uh you know you're talking potentially about massive global instability on multiple fronts and in a worst case scenario, the end of life on earth, if you take the most extreme green argument. Well, the G7 and central banks haven't managed to lift a finger to do anything about that so far on a coordinated basis. But, you know, the Dow Jones goes down
0: 10% a week and suddenly we can move mountains. Right. And uh, Jay Powell has mentioned in the past that he doesn't want to, you know, take rates negative in the U.S. Um, you know, When you look around the world, we had, it was, I think, almost 17 trillion in negative rates, uh, yielding sovereign debt. I know that's gone down to maybe 11, 12 trillion. When you look at past easing cycles with the Fed, that's a 300, 400 basis point kind of move. And where we are at, you know, call it one and a half, then that would take us well into negative territory. What's your take on that piece? Well,
1: I do think they want to avoid negative rates if
0: they can. Um, Nigga,
1: Nigga yeah. can they though Well, they, yeah. they're, they're, they're an awful idea um, and they're yet another yeah. example of the economics of the madhouse um, just let me take a little segue here for a second if I can to kind of link mm-hmm. this point to uh, the earlier part of the discussion where we were talking about uh, you know, me being one of the, the people who did see some form of GFC coming uh, you know, and too much debt etc etc um, what frustrates me so much uh, in, in this profession is the amount of commentary that comes from very smart people um, you know, working for all manner of different institutions who are so knowledgeable and yet haven't read any of the right stuff. Um, if you mm-hmm. read, for example, uh, Kaletsky, who was a, an economist writing in the 30s and 40s, um, primarily, uh, a Marxist, but you know, that doesn't necessarily mean he isn't worth reading. In fact, you know, some of the greats were Marxist to some degree. Um, he makes a compelling case that structurally, If you have uh, an economy uh, locally and particularly globally where you have a massive imbalance in power between labor and capital. So in other words, workers don't get the full fruits uh, of productivity. And that goes mainly to businesses instead. And if that isn't compensated for by governments stepping in and filling the gap to push wages higher and to keep investment up. If you end up in that paradigm, then all you will see is a larger and larger debt accumulation. Uh, Interest Mm -hmm. rates will try to rise. And each time that will cause a crisis and they'll have to be slashed lower and lower and lower and lower. And eventually you go negative. Now, the guy was arguing this in 1943 Um, Mm -hmm. because, A, because he's Polish, B, because he's a Marxist and C, because he points out the obvious that, you know, we're up a certain creek without a paddle. I cannot tell you how many credentialed, experienced economists and strategists, you know, that I speak to, uh, you know, glorious institutions have never heard of it. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. How can it be? It's the equivalent of trying to deal with some kind of virus as we're dealing with now. And someone's never read the basics on, uh, on virus transmission and actually understanding the yeah. biology of a virus. It's, it's, it's ridiculous. You know, you're trying to treat them with leeches, for example. Um, so if, if, if you put that as, as the backdrop, you Koletsky's know, arguing there that the, the imperative we have, unless something changes in the structure of the US economy, and we can maybe talk about that in a moment, that ultimately, yeah, you, there is the risk that you do end up going negative. I don't necessarily think that this virus is going to be the trigger that takes us there instantly. I mean, we're talking about going to the zero lower bound and hovering there for a very, very long time, I would think. But certainly, Mm -hmm. if that doesn't work, and we don't have any changes to the structure of the US economy, then you are going to get further mutterings in the market. Well, we need more of the same. I mean, look what's happened in Europe, for example.
0: So that brings up a great point. Now, when you look at the central bank balance sheets around the world, the Fed has already been talking about for the past, I'd say, three to six months, maybe even the past year about... Obviously we had the, uh, the repo issue, the repo hiccup, but they've been talking about large scale asset prices. They've been talking about yield curve targeting and, and just trying to pin rates down even on the long end of the curve. So is that something that they could, they, they can and probably will deploy is, is to start buying assets, whether it's treasuries, MBS, maybe even equities. I know that's been floated in Europe. Well, I mean, you have
1: to, in this respect, look and see what other people who are further ahead of us on the curve have been doing. Uh, And Mm -hmm. Japan has been trying all those things. And, of course, none of them work. I mean, negative rates don't work because if you have this structural imbalance in the economy, which I've already alluded to, uh, and we we believe passionately that is the case, um, then lower borrowing costs don't incentivize people to actually invest more because there's no demand because people aren't earning enough. It's as simple as that. Uh, And and you're hamstrung by the debt that households uh, and some corporations and in some cases governments have already built up to try and keep things moving along. So, you know, Japan's tried the negative rates, Europe's trying the negative rates, and actually net saving is going up. And in fact, ironically, you do tend to see net saving increase when you get negative interest rates, because, you know, again, your policy wonks who are oh so clever think that it will incentivize people to spend. Well, it, it doesn't, because if you have this structural imbalance in the economy where too much capital is pooled in too few hands and those hands aren't interested in actually actively investing all they want to do is just live off of asset prices uh you know like some feudal lord then the lower the interest rate gets the more they save to try and generate the same level of passive income they were getting previously um you know i i have an asian mother-in-law and i can assure you when she was still with us that's exactly what she did she was not particularly wealthy but she just lived off the uh, interest on her on her savings and every time interest rates went down she saved more and spent less Every time interest rates went up, she actually spent more because she was getting more of an income. So I've, I've had a first-hand example of exactly how that works. So the rate side won't work. Uh, you know, you talked about yield curve control. Well, okay, you can, you can pin yields into a target band to stop them rising if you want to. You know, if the central bank has been buying assets and then suddenly the market gets spooked and says, right, well, we're all selling. Okay, you can step in and buy those bonds like JGBs and say – they're not going to go above a certain level. I mean, you're effectively monetizing them to do it, but you can if you want. But how are you going to get in front of the market buying your bonds hand over fist and pushing yields lower? You know, the only way you can do that is to sell some of your stock back into the market. And effectively, you know, interest rates are just a, a volume measure of how many securities of whatever type you're buying and selling. And, and that's the point I think you are making there, that effectively central banks start operating in developed countries more along the lines of how traditionally they used to work, say, in India, for example, where it's all about liquidity management day to day uh, in terms of physical levels of cash, in terms of what you're buying asset wise, rather than just setting something like Fed funds and letting the rest of the market do what it wants to around that pivot point.
0: Yeah, um, that brings up a really good point. Now, as you mentioned earlier, let's talk a little bit about some of the structural issues and some of the effects on the economy. Now, obviously, the Fed and central banks around the world are just focusing on on equity markets, especially the Fed and U.S. equity markets. And and any little hiccup, you know, they they come out and start either jawboning or... Or, or, or literally buying assets, obviously in the repo, it was on the short end of the curve. So these 30 day bills, so they argued, well, it's not really QE because it's not large scale asset purchases on the long end. So there's this, the stock market, but, and this could be a short-term fix, as you said, our market is expecting this. And that's why we had this 5% uptick today. Recording on on March second, Monday, um, and the market will will just puke if uh, if we if we don't get uh, you know what they're looking for in this really accommodated policy. But let's talk a little bit about the effects down the road, three months, six months, even a year of of, of how the economy could just cr- kind of grind to a halt with this uh, with some of the virus issues going on. Well, okay, on that front. This is where everybody, including
1: myself, pretends to be a virologist, um, which always entertains me, because every time we have some unexpected <laughs> global crisis, all the people who actually aren't very good at economics or aren't very good at market strategy, and you know, I'm humble enough to say I'm probably in that camp too, all pretend yeah. to not, also not be very good at either understanding how military action works, if there's a war taking place in the background, or not understanding how elections work, if there's an election process coming up, and now we all get to pretend we understand how viruses work, when actually we don't. Now, <laughs> I, I am fortunate enough to actually have some contacts who are very close to world-leading experts on this field. So, you know, at least secondhand, I get some nice, uh, some nice information on that front. Um, but there are certain underlying principles that you can see at play here. Uh, and they are that this is not just a common cold. I mean, how many people told me that? when this was first beginning, uh, you know, weeks back in Asia, this is just a cold. Yeah. And I kept saying then, no, it ain't. <laughs> no, it ain't. You, you don't yeah. understand what the reaction is going to be in markets and the economy to this. Because I'm not talking about the, the danger of the virus per se. You know, we're looking at the impact on the economy in terms of how people panic about the dangers. And first of all, yeah, we can see from the supply side, the entire global model we've built up of long, highly leveraged, just-in-time, hyper-efficient, Supply chains largely centered on China works fabulously well if nothing ever goes wrong. And of course, things do go wrong. I mean, the parallel with the pre-GFC financial system is just amazing um, that you, know, you have this system which is priced to perfection that regulates itself and everything is fine until you get one weakness somewhere in the system and then you get a domino effect and it all collapses. Well, that's exactly what you're seeing on the physical side of global trade. You're not feeling the impact of it yet because everyone has inventories to run down first But if China hasn't got the virus under control and if it starts to spread again as soon as everyone is forced back to work by the government saying it's all good now, honest, take your mask off and get back in that factory, if it starts spreading again, we're going to see enormous supply chain disruptions. Uh, And, you know, in the US, for example, virus fighting gear like masks and suits and even some key drugs can no longer be manufactured in America because you've outsourced key components to China. So this shows just how big the disruption could be. And the lag time to actually start a whole new productive base in the U.S. to replicate that functionality is, is far beyond what anyone would want to see in terms of, you know, physical comfort uh, for, for key inputs, particularly in fighting a virus. So that's the supply side, which is real. And, of course, with everyone now starting to go down with the virus, even if China gets back online, other people are going to get dragged down. So it's like a bunch of guys and gals all holding hands, trying to cross the ice over a river and if one falls down everyone keeps falling over and as soon as you stand up somebody else falls, falls over and everyone gets dragged down again that's just the supply side on the demand side you know and, and linking it to the fed as i asked in this morning's note can some policy won't please tell me what the precise level of equilibrium interest rate is that means i'm no longer worried about dying or my family dying because i would like you to tell me what the interest rate is so that you no longer worry about dying When you go to the supermarket (laughs) or go to a concert or, you know, or decide to go to a holiday uh, somewhere, you know, uh, either locally or internationally. Uh, I I don't think there is one. And I think this is, again, where the idiocy of thinking monetary policy can solve it, kicks in. If everyone is going to retrench and everyone I speak to in every country now uh, around the world is starting to retrench to some degree. They've done their panic shopping and they're all keeping a wary eye out. And at some point they're all going to go home and lock the door and, you know, go out a fraction of what they normally do. And the blowback of that to the real economy is going to be enormous, absolutely enormous. And on top of a financial system that's already leveraged and priced of perfection, suddenly seeing actual physical cash flows as well as physical supply chains, both massively impacted. I, you know, I, I wonder what we can possibly do. Monetary policy, at best, kicks the can down the road. You'll have to have banks saying to companies... And individuals don't worry your debt uh, is not a problem you don't have to pay your mortgage this month Um, you know until the virus goes away there's no mortgage payments there's no credit card repayments uh, there's no business loan repayments etc etc well that's going to hit bank earnings someone's going to have to make the banks good so that's going to have to be the central bank so maybe that's part of what we'll see today yeah if people also need cash flow if a business or a household is told okay you're not going to be earning anything for the next two months you don't have to service your mortgage, but you've still got to live and you haven't got any savings, where's the money going to come from? So presumably there's going to have to be a blank check to at least keep everything ticking over. That's a very big bailout, you know, TARP style. Um, for every Yeah,
0: I was going to say kind of a TARP 2.0 or <laughs>
1: something like that. Yeah, but this time it's not going to banks, not directly. I mean, maybe it's going to have to go to them partly, but it's going to have to go to the real economy too. So even when you recover, imagine you're, you know, uh, joe blogs with acme company doing xyz you're going to have to massively increase your your leverage just to get through this and the longer it lasts the worse it will get and when we finally emerge yeah there'll be a little bit of a pickup that everyone's happy and they go out on the streets again you know whatever that is but particularly in the services sector you're not going to get an extra surge of spending to compensate for what you missed people are not going to get two haircuts to compensate for the haircut appointment that they missed So your revenue is going to go back to where it was previously, but you're much more highly geared.
0: So you tell me how we get out of that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I know we've seen certain stocks. Uh, Zoom comes to mind, the recent IPO, the, the video conferencing company, you know, they've gotten a pop, obviously Costco, there, there's certain, you know, stocks people are looking at, and, and most of them have already been bid up a little bit as far as for people staying home and, and which areas are going to benefit. But I think like, as you mentioned, you could see in the sh- in the short term, and even to the, to the even longer term and going out, who knows how long, as you mentioned, um, a huge hit to the economy as far as stadiums, concerts, I mean, just retail stores could be just everything. And then you brought up the supply chain issue. You know, when you look at most of most things coming from China, whether it's, um, you know, medicines and ingredients in medicine, and then, you know, when you look at a car, 80 or 90% of the parts are, are made in China. So, You know, obviously, uh, I could take months or even, I don't know, maybe even a year or two or or longer to get those type of, uh, you know, things up and running as far as uh, factories and being able to produce those parts, uh, kind of that deglobalization piece. Well, it could do. And obviously, the uncertainty is something markets should
1: be pricing for, rather than the certainty that central banks are going to save them somehow um but it's a very fast-moving uh scenario no one knows exactly which way it's going to go but one thing you can see i I spoke early on about this being an accelerant and i'm now seeing more and more commentators saying yeah this is an accelerant to deglobalization look we agree but we've been arguing that for years for years and Mm -hmm. years uh, and actually you know pinpointing how you were going to get protectionism you were going to get trade wars uh, because yeah. currency wars then trade wars and then you know political pressure building up to something far nastier and that at some point you were going to have to get some version of modern monetary theory or you know hand-holding between central banks and governments to try and jump start the economy and the question was whether it would be environmental or military that would prove to be you know the, the green light for everyone to, to press ahead with this well it looks like to be a virus instead but mm-hmm. on the other side of it you only really have two two kind of polemic scenarios you head towards eventually uh, in terms of where this can logically go you can either aim for your one world we have a global economy where everyone works together centrally planning how to get out of this uh you know united nations imf style model where china and the u.s are friends again a global supply and demand is rebalanced uh, alongside you know investments in antivirus technology etc etc you know it's an idealized world and I like to think that is a Star Trek scenario, perhaps not this current iteration of Star Trek, which is a lot more gloomy and dystopian, ironically. But, you know, your, your classic 1960s, 1980s uh, Star Trek, Gene Rodenberry vision of the future. But if you don't go that route, it's a very strong impetus to what you're already seeing, which is, you know, flood the moat, raise the drawbridge, make sure that my central bank provides liquidity for my people, but none of that liquidity can be used to buy products from other people, keep the money circulating at home to make sure we get out of it and don't let foreigners come in because they might be bringing germs, uh, which is very, very anti-globalization, but at the same time is imminently sensible to some extent when you see the shocks that an integrated global supply chain are capable of inflicting. I mean, how long are we going to listen or how long do we have to listen before someone actually says as a politician, why the hell can't we as country XYZ Make antivirus masks. Why are they all made in yeah. China? Why haven't right. we got drugs? Why haven't we got enough hospitals to treat people? You know, because of austerity, because of uh, you know, small government, free trade, uh, political models, etc., etc. So the blowback you could get to all of this could be just enormous.
0: Yeah, and and that's where I, where I want to go. Lastly, is you know, a big theme on the podcast is this pull between inflation and deflation. Kind of that central question, and I, as you mentioned, you can look at Japan. Equity market peaked in eighty nine, ninety never recovered. They've they've been doing QE for much longer than the U S. And and when you look around the world, we have these forces. Obviously, people talk about them all the time: the debt, demographics, deflation, these and technology really pulling inflation down. And then when you look on the other side, this globalization piece if it does play out the way that you just talked about, you know that could really lead to a lot of inflation or or maybe even I saw a scenario someone wrote up online where maybe the Fed just comes in and cuts way too much. Um, and then it, it does the opposite effect, where it just sparks fear in the market, which is people say, oh, well, how, how could that happen? But maybe the Fed loses control of rates on the long end of the curve. How are you looking at that, that piece?
1: Well, I think it's a key question. Um, mm-hmm. We have had inflation fears in some corners of the market for years. And through yeah. all of them, we've continued to grind deeper and deeper into deflation. Uh, that's on aggregate. Of course, you know, prices are through the roof, or at least inflation is through the roof for lots of things that I see uh daily Uh, but that's because we don't measure inflation right at all you know i've always had issues over (laughs) whether we should really be saying you know that flat screen television that you're not buying overall means that inflation is absolutely going down whereas you know your food prices and your healthcare prices uh, and your house prices are going through the roof so I, i think we measure inflation completely wrong uh because of you know idiotic uh intellectual fallacies like uh uh Hedonic regression and you know swift switching from from uh, steak to chicken for example presuming that that's Automatically happening and that means therefore there isn't inflation. So right. Let, let's take that as a, as a base case First of all uh, before we move any further forward, but with that criticism in place What we're already going to see during this crisis is an extension of what we do see which is rampant inflation in some areas and deflation in others so you'll have a very, very depressing effect because demand is going to go off a cliff. And good luck raising your prices, you know, when, when no one's coming out to shop.
0: But, <laughs>
1: but equally, good luck not raising your prices when you can't get hold of a certain component for love nor money. Um, you know, that, so you're going to have potentially sharply polemic effects on inflation with massive inflation in some areas and massive deflation in others. And on aggregate, you know, again, economists being useful idiots will turn around and say, oh, well, therefore, there isn't any inflation. Or inflation is 2% because it's minus 20 in some areas and, you know, plus 20 in others. Therefore, it's flat overall. Yeah, good luck trying to actually manage an economy on that basis, right? It doesn't actually tell you at all what's actually going on. But more more thematically, I said earlier that, you know, your ideal scenario globally is your Star Trek one, which I don't actually think is realistic politically. Your alternative is your Star Wars scenario where you do have uh, us versus them first order versus resistance kind of political feeling or, or headwind uh, to everything that happens. And on that basis, is it inflationary? Well, yes, but it depends on who's running deglobalization. Because mm-hmm. if you get a deglobalization that's genuinely, genuinely for the working class, so that you are bringing jobs back home, you are ensuring that you, know, you don't have low-cost workers coming in to suppress wages... You are forcing firms to invest more one way or another. The government is filling that gap, if not, and employing people at a very high salary to benchmark salaries higher. If you do all these things alongside industrial policy, which is effectively what China has been doing for years, then, yeah, you're going to get wage inflation. And overall, you'd imagine you'll get a healthy level of inflation. Of course, that can smack assets, if you're looking at it from a financial market point of view. But it will smack some assets, mainly those that have been built up you know, by the idle rich rather than, you know, the, the average working Joe, who will actually have more money in his pocket. So you'll get winners and losers and redistribution within the economy. That's if you get a certain kind of deglobalization. If you get actually another kind of deglobalization, which is, <laughs> excuse me, uh, us versus them, finger-pointing, angry populism run by local oligarchs within each country, rather than, and pretending to be for the worker, but actually being for the oligarch, whereas the workers still get the crumbs. I'm not going to go into too much detail, detail on that, but I think you can understand the kind of picture I'm painting. Then all you do is, instead of substituting your global oligarchs, so the ones who are worth tens of billions of dollars because of the, you know, the global reach of their company, you'll substitute them for local robber barons within each particular country, who are then worth maybe just, you know, three or four billion, just, you know, chicken feed like that. And you still won't end up with the workers actually getting a great deal. Yeah, you'll just end up having fingers pointed at, you know, either other ethnic groups, other religious groups, or other countries as the reason why people start, aren't doing any better. And we've certainly seen that from history. So I'm not saying that any one leader anywhere falls into either of those two categories. Uh, I'm talking in general, uh, general memes here, or general archetypes, and it's up to listeners to decide who they see doing what. Um, and that you can make a very strong case in all different directions over who is or isn't doing what. But it, it shows you that it's more complicated than people think. Deglobalization doesn't necessarily mean uh, you know, inflation. It doesn't. It can do, but it doesn't have to be.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And lastly, kind of wrapping up, um, when you look at asset prices, obviously risk assets being equities, being priced where they are. And when you look at the lofty valuations, now taking the other side of that, as far as looking at safe haven assets or where to hide, obviously we saw gold sell off pretty sharply. It's been a wild ride. It was up, it was down. I know it recovered a little bit today, but similar to 2008, where a lot of people were selling gold to cover uh, margin positions and basically freeing up cash in that kind of sense. And when you look at you know 2008, we had this correlation to one of risk assets where everything was down, even gold, except for long-term treasuries. And now, obviously, with treasuries where they are, we've this after this 30-year bond bull market or 35-year bond bull market seemingly coming to an end at some point, maybe, like you said, if, if rates go negative, um, you know how, how far negative could they go, right? But how do you see that piece as far as you know, maybe cash just gives you optionality there. Um, but do you have any thought, general thoughts on that? Not, not really specific, but uh, uh, more general? General thoughts on that. I mean, obviously,
1: when you're talking about this topic and when you're bringing in gold, you're talking about paradigm shifts. I think, yeah. I think rather than, you know, momentum trading or technical trading or even fundamentals trading, you're talking paradigmatic shifts. And clearly, our entire paradigm is under threat. Uh, I think I've uh, underlined why that is the case. And you only Mm -hmm. have to open your eyes and look around you, and you can see that everything is changing. Now, does that make me a gold bug? Well, The answer is no, Uh, and for a couple of reasons. I mean, number one, Mm -hmm. on specifically the gold front, look at your history. Whenever things get to the point where gold could actually be useful, they ban it. Um, And uh, the same with cryptocurrencies, I mean, you can argue that they're the new version of gold. First of all, they're not, because you can keep creating new ones. You know, it makes me laugh. It's like, this is gold. This is schmold. This is bowls. This is gold. (laughs) You know, they're all gold. No, they're not. The fact that you're just able to make up a new one shows you that they're not. Uh, uh, But but equally, no one's actually really using them. Everyone's hoarding them. So they don't have Mm -hmm. any function as a currency. And the same is true for gold. You're not actually using it. When you can use it to repay your sovereign debt or international trading, then it might really have some functionality. Uh, but, unfortunately, the powers that be, the ones with the taxation powers and with all the military powers and with all the jails, they're the ones who get to set what you do or don't do international trade in for now. You know, as, as Joe blogs, you can say, right, I'll pay for my widgets from China if I can get them in gold. And good luck with that, you know. It's, it's far more difficult than you think to set up your own international payment system, particularly in a very physically heavy currency. So I, I don't buy into that, even though I understand the impetus to look for something new when the old is collapsing. Um, but in terms of what you're going to see with cash and with, and with long bonds, et cetera, et cetera, I think the logical endpoint, again, and I like to try and understand the paradigm and push it to its extreme, to scenario test, is that, yeah, yields will do what they do in Japan, where they go negative, um, at which point the, you know, the bull market has further to run. Obviously, you can still make money even with negative rates provided you sell to somebody else who's going to buy them at even more negative rates. But at some point, you do hit a floor, whether it's minus 0.5, minus 1, wherever, where people say, I'm actually losing so much money with these, I'm just not going to hold them anymore. I'd rather just have cash, which obviously has no yield at all. And then the last person holding that bond obviously carries the cash that is guaranteed to make a huge loss. So <laughs> it's a greater fall uh, trade, which can continue for quite some time. But while that's continuing to the downside on the yield, obviously, as we saw uh, you know, today uh, in, in US time with the equity market reacting despite fundamentals stinking in the real economy. And you'll see equities mathematically go up as those bond yields go down until you again get to a ludicrous level where actually there's no, re- no relation to reality whatsoever. And then when the bond yield hits its absolute floor, equities will hit their absolute ceiling at the same time. So you'll have an equity price which is through the ceiling and has actually no, no, no connection to reality at all. And the last person holding it is holding a dud. And you have a bond yield, which is through the floor, and then no connection to reality. And the last person to buy it is again holding a dud, at which point then we're in a real mess. (laughs) Then we really have nowhere else left to go. And then other questions about what we do next will start to resurface. (laughs) But as I said, gold and Bitcoin, sadly, I don't think are going to be the solutions that people think they're going to be unless governments get on board with them. Uh, And I don't think they will.
0: Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. I read some interesting research talking about when the market does finally come to an area where it's somewhat priced appropriately, I'll put it that way, then in the future, at least dividend payers and... Obviously, value is underperformed, but companies throwing off cash, companies paying the dividend, those are going to be the ones that you're going to want to hold um, you know, going forward because at least you, it's something that you get paid to own instead of just looking for that appreciation. So I, I thought that was kind of interesting. I think that's very true. And effectively, stocks become like bonds.
1: You're no longer buying them for the appreciation. You're buying it just for the income stream, yeah. which is not going to be very high. Yeah. And ironically, bonds become like stocks because you're only buying them for the uh, underlying value appreciation, <laughs> selling it to somebody else. Well, I <laughs> right. think we've, been, we've, we've, we've been in that scenario for a while, but obviously this, this is going to accelerate it to its terminal point quite rapidly. Um, of course, that's presuming that you do still have a company that can pay out solid dividends, and that depends what the, the structure of the global economy looks like. And the other problem is that if we get the G7 on Super Trooper Tuesday starting to say, OK, central banks and governments are going to hold hands and work together to get this, get us through this, You are going down the other path that gold bugs love to talk about, which is, uh, you know, the corruption of not just uh, understanding where pricing should be and and the price discovering mechanism, but actually free markets at all of any kind. If you're going to start getting the state that involved in the economy to save us all from the virus, how does it disentangle itself in the future? At which point, you know, you can end up in a very, very Chinese looking economy faster than people think. Uh, And the one thing I can tell you after looking at Chinese financial markets is that nothing means anything. You know, black can be white, white can be black, up is down, down is up. And you know, people chase rumors and suspicions and guesses of what they think policymakers in Beijing are going to be doing to determine where they think value lies rather than ever actually looking at the balance sheet of the company involved. Well, you know, that could be our brave new world.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that, bring, that brings up a lot of good points. Well, Michael, this was great. Really appreciate having you on. We're going to be looking forward to tomorrow and see what happens. I'm going to link your recent articles in the show notes and link your bio. But um, you, why don't you tell listeners where they can find you and follow follow more of your work? Uh, well, obviously, uh, for those who are Rabobank
1: customers, uh, my work should hopefully be coming to you in your inbox or already. Uh, and if you're not one of our clients, then occasionally or fairly regularly at the moment, you can see some of my daily notes uh, on Zero Hedge. Uh, obviously not on Twitter. That's uh, a <laughs> <laughs> bone, con- bone of contention for the, uh, for the guys who run Zero Hedge. Exactly, But uh, on, on the website from time to time, you will see them. Uh, so if you, uh, if you find any of this of interest, please uh, have a look there.
0: Great, Michael. Really
1: appreciate it. And thanks a lot. Thank you. Have a great day and enjoy Super Trooper Tuesday. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter at jellydonutpod, or you can contact us via email at jellydonutpodcast at protonmail.com. As a reminder, All opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.